Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively? It'll be up to you, and you too. Hey, Todd. Hello. Thankfully, we got that shorter intro now <laughs> again. Yes. <laughs> Oh, oh, I was trying to figure out what that little uh, dial was, and that's the indicator of how much time is left on that sound. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yes, we have uh, our replacement board back in yeah. that doesn't make the little squealy noise. Um, yeah, so you you were at church today. To, uh, I was earlier. I even saw Dave Baylor of the Nate of the Not Nerd Not Podcast. Nerd Podcast. Great people. Um, are you have have you ever experienced what? vegan Christians at, at church, what they uh, hunt for? Ooh, I haven't. Uh, well, they wouldn't be fishers of men, clearly, because that's not vegan. <laughs> not vegan. Uh, they would They would be looking for lettuce prey. <laughs> <laughs> I think it only goes down. It only goes down. <laughs> it only goes down. <laughs> From here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was two shows ago. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I told I met that um, I was telling you about that new family I met that I might start working with, and she was all in the podcast. So I was telling her, telling her about ours, and I'm like, "Oh, you should go listen to it." And that was right after we, <laughs> right after two episodes. Like, I'm like, except for that one, except you pick any other one, any, that should be fine. any other episode. It's always nice to reset the bar. Yes. <laughs> um, so, does your um, teapot whistle when it's done, or should I just be it, listening to it? I have your teapot on because I'm boiling some water. The chrome one. Yes. That, uh, does that one not work? No, it should. Okay. Yeah, oh, that it one should, should whistle. whistle. Okay, so yeah. we'll wait for that then. Because I've got, yeah. I've got some water boiling for a for a thing coming nice. up. But I'll start with a story about libraries. Yay! So in 2019, more Americans went to the library than the movies, according to a recent Gallup poll, the first such survey since 2001. Uh, so it remains by far the most common cultural activity Americans engage in. Uh, quote: Visiting the library remains the most common cultural activity. <laughs> They just repeat that same line. Uh, by average, 10.5 trips to the library um, uh, per year. That No, that must not be per year. Or maybe it will be. It just says the average of 10.5 trips to the library U.S. adults report taking in 2019 exceeds their participation in eight other common leisure activities. Boy, that is a clunky <laughs> sentence. Holy Toledo. Yeah. So they went 10 and a half times on the average. To yeah. the library. Yeah, so it, it uh, beat that eight other activities. Me. Yeah, uh, the least visited were theme parks, which makes sense because like you don't live near a theme right. park often, uh, and zoos, which is even lower. Zoos is one point five times, and zoos is point nine. So, oh. zoos losing a little bit of interest. Um, gambling. Let's see. So Americans attend live music or theatrical events and visit national uh, or historic parks roughly four times a year on average and visit museums and gambling casinos 2.5 times. Hmm. So uh, 10.5 is is the libraries. Um, two more interesting facts, though unsurprising findings, are that women report visiting the libraries near twice as frequently as men do and that libraries are visited most, most by adults in low-income households and least by adults in high-income households, huh, okay. of course. So um, always love the libraries. I have one more yeah. 
don't mess with a no, don't mess with the knitting community. Number one, if you have a YouTube channel. Number two, uh, don't mess with librarians because the uh, Missouri House of Representatives, um, a representative named Ben Baker. Now let's see how easy this is to predict. Uh, so he introduced a bill dubbed the quote. What word is it going to have in it? <laughs> uh, freedom. Oh, close. <laughs> Liberty, liberty. The, the libraries, I guess oh. it's not liberties, but oh, there goes your. Nope. <laughs> Hold on, <laughs> Mark Vamp for time. <laughs> so I, I would. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. Story of my life. We've officially entered birthday season, as uh, Todd's birthday was last week. Mine is tomorrow. Nick's was two weeks ago. And, uh, okay, so Todd Todd uh, boiled some water. He's got a hot mug of water. So I've decided that you have to start um, you have to start collecting a certain type of thing because I saw this and I couldn't pass it up. You can just rip that bag because it's already ripped. <laughs> so this is a Sterling engine, which Brian has gotten one of you. It's right. just a beautiful, uh, a beautiful Sterling engine where you light a candle underneath a piston and it goes. This one sits at sits atop a coffee cup and what? uses the heat generated by your coffee steam to run this uh, a giant wheel that sits on top of it. So some assembly is required. Yeah, you can push them pretty solidly. Spoilers, I opened up your gift and used it. <laughs> I had to make sure it worked. Yes. So I have a friend on Facebook uh, who posted a picture of his, and I was like, what is that? <laughs> because everyone I know is going to be getting one for them for birthday. <laughs> there we go. Nice. All okay. right. So then that should fit on top of our cup here. And it says it needs to heat up. And if yep. you want to make it go faster, you can put some ice on the top there because uh, that makes the temperature. So about 20 seconds or so, maybe a little bit longer since our, our we'll give it a little, steam a little is a little. And then you give it a push and uh, it'll it'll go. So I figured that's a nice one you can have at the office or have any for a really conversational cool. piece. and. I struggled with the, oh, he already has one, but this one was, was too good for me to pass up. So I, Is there a direct? No. It's probably non-directional, huh? Yeah, there it goes. It's, it's, it's starting. It goes, yeah, it, it doesn't take long for that to... It's got a great little flywheel. It's, it's all metal. It's super solid. So it does in the instructions there say if you want to loosen it up, you can take a pencil and use the graphite to kind of grease the grease all the points that touch each other and there's something about painting the piston for some reason i'm not sure why so yeah then if you put ice on top of that or if the if the drink was even warmer that uh, wheel would obviously <laughs> didn't you just burn yourself with yes. the cup okay well then it's hot enough That's oh yeah you can hear really it. You can cool hear it. listen Yeah, or if it's too loud, they said you can put the little graphite little, on little the graphite green. So yeah. anyway, yay! yay I was that's so super excited. cool. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And I'll, oh, that's a good. And then I got from Brian a couple of things. <laughs> I, I got kind of this drone. It's not a drone, but it's like a. It's it's a it's a yo-yo. It's a flying yo-yo. It's a boomerang. It's a electric frisbee. 
Sort of, yeah. It looks like the top part of an oscillating fan. Um, yes. But it's maybe about three or four inches across. Uh, and you can like toss it up in the air and it will come back to you or let up. But then he also got me. Oh, I need to use the other side of the mic. Oh, oh man, the goat's flying everywhere. He got me a little tiny screaming goat figurine that when you press, you and press him, he screams, which has been a huge hit with with Colin and his well, I saw a video. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Using it as every teenage boy to manufacture fart noises. <laughs> <laughs> I love Which is that. Great, so that. anyway, that, that's going to be fun to see how long that yeah that goes that's on. That's really on. really cool. So yeah, so we have a good show today. I think <laughs> so. We uh, packed. packed. So we were we'll go over a little uh, news here, and then uh, we have Stephen coming in, and uh, Stephen's last name is pronounced. I'm pronounced. I'm excited to see how he pronounces <laughs> it because I've only read it. So uh, Stephen is by trade he's a veterinarian uh, but by position he works at the center centers for disease control and uh so he is you know we'll find out all about what his job entails and uh hopefully some he was insight it was like coronavirus he had to like run it past manage like (laughs) all this official stuff and it was it was pretty well if they say something publicly that is uh, incorrect, incorrect, they could affect <laughs> the world. Like how I misquoted the fir- one of the first things he ever told me. And I was like, oh, so bats around here don't carry rabies. I don't need to be as afraid. But they do. And it's like, <laughs> right. The number one, whatever. <laughs> rabies. I'm, like, right. oh, I'm still like, getting that wrong. Coronavirus. You, you cure by licking somebody <laughs> with coronavirus. <laughs> Uh, well, let's get back to our librarian yeah. story. So oh, yeah. uh, the bill is is dubbed the Parental Oversight of Public Libraries Act um, that represent, Missouri Representative Ben Baker introduced that calls for a creation of a panel made up of non-library workers who will determine, quote, the re- determine the removal of age-inappropriate sexual material from their local branch. Um, libraries that don't comply will lose their funding. So library employees uh, providing material, blah, 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 would be uh, fined uh, $500 or a maximum year in jail. Um, Cynthia Dudenhofer, who not only has the best name that we're going to read all day, is the president of the Missouri Library Association, said she was shocked when she first heard about the bill and said it was unnecessary. She said, libraries, librarians take this stuff very seriously. It's not like we buy things willy-nilly. Um they tried to reach the representative, um, which he his calls were not returned. Um, the representative and former minister told the Springfield News leader he wrote the bill. What do you think? Why he wrote this bill for real? That uh, stories that uh, it, it's kind got, of been in the news about um, libraries already. I, I don't know. Uh, in response to the drag queen stories, uh, story hours that were taking place in certain branches in that state, quote, I wanted to send a strong message that we need to protect our kids and we need to do something about it. But that's all negotiable. So uh, Dudenhofer, however, said the drag queen story hours and other similar events aren't mentioned in the bill at all. And readings have not included booked with any sexual material. Um, so the National Coalition Against Censorship um said the proposal is trying to remove books that promote, uh, that promote positive LGBTQ messages. So um, 
Every librarian who works in that state system must have a master's degree and go through strict training, which includes determining what materials are appropriate for younger readers. So that is already part of a librarian's education. Um, the librarians have a training to represent the needs of the community, she said. So, like, uh, I wish I had enough a battle, free time right? to who's pick that battle. Picking a battle with librarians. And they're the wrong people to cross because, oh, yeah. like, they are <laughs> hyper educated. <laughs> well, and, and like nobody and, is. I mean, it sounds weird, but like nobody is more into all the freedom of speech. Is like all of right. that stuff is the librarians right. are like our front line for freedom of speech. <sighs> so anyway, that representative, I have uh, a feeling, just wants to um, get a little bit of press for himself. I would like to see that. the stat on. Uh, library use like over the last 20 years hmm. as internet uh, you know like I when I applied for a job in 1995 that's so soothing to have it's it like is having a, a paddle wheel yeah. in the background <laughs> we could have it pump water <laughs> it could generate electricity yeah the uh, the one oh, that, yeah, the other got, one, that right. one lights an LED um, the uh, when I got a, a job in 1995, I got re a request for an interview, and before I went to the interview, I went to the library to look up all the details about that company. Yeah. It was a big corporation, and and so I got their public, um, uh, uh, like the Dow Jones Industrial, uh, the investor, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, performa and and everything like what do they do and how do they do it what's what's their mission and and everything and um it's that just information didn't exist anywhere else yeah except for like going to the company itself and uh you know when i was growing up we were poor and we always went to the library mm -hmm. you could you know toys and games and books and and uh, public readings of stuff. They had movies and like it. It was. We didn't spend a lot of time at. at the library, but that was always like the big like summer. You would go get like your all the Encyclopedia Brown books and all those Bobsy Twin books and all of uh, those yeah. ones and and um I yeah so I didn't spend a lot of time in libraries but um bookstores I would always just get yeah. lost in and then when I got to. Um, WSU, I mean, the libraries there are huge and college students don't use a library. So like you would be the only one in like this just gigantic building just filled with all those books and that smell and finding that one random one that you were looking for. It was just it's it was a very satisfying yeah. feeling to be able to like you're the only one that unlocked that information because you did the work to just go pick up that book and look inside and who was the person that wrote this and like what were their lives like and all that stuff is just so neat um wow anyway so the librarians are fighting the good fight so nonprofits reach a fundraising milestone to transform the wapato jail into housing for the homeless so the ongoing story of the wapato jail uh, here in Portland goes on. They hope to raise $2.5 million and they did that in three weeks. Um, so nice. the nonprofit works with the homeless in Clatsop, Tillamook, Yamhill and Lincoln counties. 
and they would run the new facility. The shelter would be called the Bybee Lakes Hope Center. It would take over the empty, empty jails, transforming it into a shelter with a number of programs. Uh, Evans, who once con- uh, who was once homeless himself, is one of the main forces behind the effort. He said, this is what it's all about, offering people hope and opportunity, he said um, Sunday. Now that they've hit their first fundraising goal, organizers want to raise another $4 million over the next two years. So... And that makes so much sense, even like for old mall properties. Yep. To have they've the been, they've been talking about doing that with Lloyd Center. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I mean, it would make sense even just looking at like you enter at this side of the building, homeless, and you take the programs and you kind of go out the other side, having completed and having yep. been in, uh, equipped to to tackle some of the things. There's a program in Chicago that I've been really impressed with. They uh, they are a manufacturing facility that make jackets, uh, coats that also double as a, um, a carrying bag and a sleeping bag. Uh, oh. And so uh, you zip off the bottom part and that's now, now it's a coat, you zip it on and that becomes the feet part of the sleeping bag. Wow. And then you, it's got a strap that you can use the whole sleeping bag as a duffel bag to put all your stuff in. And, the manufacturing facility is run by homeless people. And so they've currently got 50 or 60 employees. They've had 12 graduate out and get homes and uh, in an average of 10 months of working there, wow. going from homeless to uh, being homed. And, right. uh, and Yeah, I was talking with uh, my folks came last week and we were kind of talking about like kind of the roots and, and stuff of the homeless problem. And, and a couple of years ago when I went through, um, I lost half my work and all that stuff. And it was like just a really a catastrophic time that, and I told him like, if I didn't have friends and right. I didn't go to my church, like I would have been homeless. Right. And like, even if I would have gotten a job that day, it's, you get paid a month later, there's $3,000 worth of applications fee to yep. get into an apartment, they see that you've been evicted. Like there yeah. is no way it, yeah. to crawl out of that pit and that trap. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully this will answer some of the issues that are, are keeping people on the street, not just kind of a hotel for people who don't care to, to take advantage of it. So so the Sterling engine seems to be slowing down a little bit, but it is going strong. It's still going. Yeah. Yeah. You grease that thing up with a pencil and we'll go forever like a perpetual motion machine. It's like an old fan on an abandoned farm. Worst worst (laughs) podcast content ever. Let's listen to this wheel turn. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Uh, Well, let's turn to the sun, where they have released the highest resolution images of the sun ever taken. Did you see those? I saw those. Yes, it looks like a super close picture of like a caramel, a piece of caramel corn. Um, let's see. They reveal our star surface in an unprecedented detail. Each roiling cell-like, I love the word roiling, cell-like structures in this captivating snapshots represents an area the size of Texas, which is pointless, I guess, if you're not looking at this picture, (laughs) um, and are shaped by convective process inside the star, as well as the intense solar magnetic fields. Um, 
So this was taken at the Daniel K. Inui Solar Telescope in Hawaii, which is the largest ob- uh, observatory devoted to solar research on Earth. It's capable of pinpointing surface details that are just 18 miles across, making it three times as sen- uh, sensitive as the um, its predecessors. In addition, um, it can expand a film expansive wide shots that can fit 23,000 miles uh, of the sun into frame. Um, wow. So. Uh, scientists plan to use the satellite to unravel some of the most persistent mysteries about our star, including the long-sought long explanation of why the sun's atmosphere, the corona, is about 300 times hotter than the surface, which I'd never heard before. What? So the observatory will blah, 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 keep measuring that and taking pictures. So um, it's just this... Just much, much like sound and speakers, like the sun sort of freaks me out sometimes. Yeah. It's like I don't get how it just... I don't get how I get how it works. <laughs> I just go. Fusion. I don't get that it works. Yeah, right. Like uh, all no, the time for a very long time. Four billions of years. Yeah. Now. Like yeah, how it, it has all enough one. stuff into it in it to perpetually be that hot for that long is <laughs> right. insane. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm Todd and I don't Fusion. understand much. Uh, yeah. So uh, we will. I, I've been thinking about this and and kind of framing out the content we're going to do an episode on sound and uh go deep blow into, my mind it's gonna blow your ears <laughs> and uh but i've got i've got a prop that i need to get that is on order uh Ooh, so we, yeah so we'll, we'll uh, a giant spinning wheel <laughs> that's all i got oh, okay oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry no i just like it that reminded me since our show is so packed i'm gonna put off um, discussing the documentary I forced you and Nick to watch Paris is burning. Oh, it's so, amazing because I have a lot of thoughts about that. So I won't take that. I won't take the time now, but I did want to talk about a movie we did see, uh, for my birthday, which was the, um, Oh, now I forget what it's called. We saw it at the Hollywood theater, the, uh, video store documentary. Yeah. Um, at, at the, video at the video store. store. Yeah. It's just called at the video store. There we go. Which was so good it was such an amazing little uh love letter to video stores and the video store culture and it just kind of did a nice deep dive into into and they had a bunch of like talking head types people david walker showed up of course because he shows up in everything (laughs) uh bill Hader was in it uh john waters was in it a bunch of people like that a bunch of indie film directors yeah and so instead of the overall video store phenomena they focused on kind of mom and pop independent uh sideline stores my face into uh, microphones <laughs> i was nodding with such with such what, vigor i just yeah. drove my face right into and, it and that wasn't something that i hung out uh, you know there there seems to be a whole subculture of uh hanging out at the at the video store so i lived in los angeles when uh rocket video oh, yeah. was still open and then they downsized and moved across the street and then they closed like six months later and i remember the uh, the uh, amount of noise coming out of humans uh (laughs) there was just so upset and moved that this phenomena was was closing and in in portland we're we're lucky to have movie madness that it continues to be open but these uh, these little gems of uh, video culture 
there's still a, a handful of them across the United States, but n- not more than Well, and that was sad because they, they kind of highlighted maybe four or five of the huge um, uh, stores that kind of, there's one in Seattle, there's uh, Movie Madness, and there was like three or four kind of scattered around. And then at the end of the movie, they were like, and they have all gone out of business except for, for Movie Madness and, and the one in Seattle because they turned those into a nonprofit. Right. And so that's how they're because they operate at a loss. And so if you haven't been to Movie Madness, they've got this whole like really nice theater, like screening room in there where they just show movies and everything is just come in and hang out. And I think that's really yeah. a really cool idea. So um yeah, so we're we're talking. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to do an episode of Portland at the movies. That would from, be that would uh, be great from there. So we're going to talk to them. I keep expecting that the wheel to stop, but no, it's, it's, it's holding on. It's it's starting it's a, to do the. It's faster lopsided, on this. Yeah, yeah, it's faster on this side than on that thump, one, thump, and thump. Uh, because it is driving a piston, so it's got a little uh, uh, rod coming off of the the dr- the cam. <laughs> And, but one thing that also happened uh, on that night that we went to see the video store movie is I, I lost my crap because of that parking. So I was coming from work. It was on a Thursday night and the movie starts at seven 30 and I'm meeting people there for my birthday. And so it's already cutting late. And so you uh, and Brian Dave Baylor from the not nerve podcast, they showed you, you guys all showed up and the Hollywood district is terrible is for parking. terrible and all it's like Sanford or like Boston where like <laughs> none of the streets make sense and just scatter off into all these directions. And so I find there's one tiny little corner parking lot kind of right on the backside of the Hollywood theater. I pulled in there. There's one spot open. It is exactly 730. It pouring down rain, like windy, like it's been windy here lately. Oh, it was it, just it was driving pouring down madness. rain. It was wild. It was <laughs> well, January was the highest amount of rain that we've received in like 10 years oh, or wow. something like that. Like, and it was all coming down that night. <laughs> that night at that moment. Yeah. And I go and I'm looking for the little pay station or whatever, <laughs> and there's a big sign that says, pay here. And then it gives a phone number, which isn't a phone number. It's like and the five-digit code. I'll find this. Yeah, so um, I stare at it. There's some other guy just staring at it. And there was two ways to pay, but you could either – it was it, it said pay by text somehow or pay by calling this number, which was not a phone number. And so I'm looking for the other, like there's always should be a, oh, but here's cash or here's a swipe machine or whatever. There was none of that. So I'm trying to press my park, my license plate number onto my phone in the driving rain and then match up the thing. And so I went back to the car and then you have to enter your credit card number if you already don't have whatever. And it wasn't the parking kitty app that like the rest of the. No, this is a private some proprietary nonsense. I put in my whole credit card number by number, then the little code, then the expiration date, then your name as it appears on card. And like <laughs> I do all that. And it's like, sorry, we don't accept this kind of card. It was just a visa card. And so I try another card going through that whole process. And that time I'm just fuming at that point. I'm already late. And so I gave up. I had to drive away and I just, headed down the street like 10 blocks and parked there and just ran in and thankfully i still caught the beginning of the movie but i was 
so mad that there wasn't just because the assumption that it's okay to do that drives me crazy. Like it's not a standardized, Oh, this is the parking app or this is the way to do it. It's nonsense. That's not explained. And there isn't a way out of it. Like there isn't a way for me just to give you my money because I'm standing here and I just parked and I got to go. So you know that on their side of the equation, it's some doofus that has this property and a company salesperson just sold them the best thing ever. Like you don't need to install equipment. You don't need to manage the machine with the swiping and the things, the app, n- none of that. They just sim- they send you a text, and and you're you just wake up in the question morning. Question mark? Question mark? Question mark? Todd drives away furiously. You just wake up shouting, in the morning, and there's money in your account. Shouting the f word into the rain as I was. So yeah, <laughs> to these startled looks of the people trying to cross the parking lot. But anyway, go see the movie if you have a chance. Called uh, at the video store. But back into our news, I originally thought this said autism, but it is not. Born, uh, it says research proves that altruism oh. begins in infancy. Infancy, so that is also kind of interesting. So they discovered babies. Oh yeah, I did read this. <coughs> so um, babies, even when they're hungry, they say uh, finding effectively prove that altruistic behavior begins in if, uh, in infancy. Kindness towards one another. Uh, at one's expense is uniquely isn't a uniquely human trait. While some primates have displayed a tendency to help each other and share resources, it's virtually unheard of across the animal kingdom for the animal to give up food he or she needs just because another one is in need. So the, for this study, fruits were used, blueberries, bananas, and grapes, and each infant was placed in a room with an adult researcher they had never met before sitting across from them at a table. The infants were separated into control groups. That's so, so terrible. The infants were separated into groups, uh, into a control and an experimental group. In the control setting, the researcher threw a piece, of, threw a piece of fruit on the floor. Wait, threw a piece of fruit onto the floor, out of their own reach, but easily attainable for the baby. After that, the researcher didn't react at all or tried to grab the fruit at all. So in that setting, the research. Pre- oh, in the experimental setting the researcher pretended to accidentally drop the fruit uh and then make failed attempts at retrieving the snack so um it was that obvious display of effort and desire for the fruit that seemed to invoke a caring response in babies more than half of the infants in the experimental group reached down and gave their fruit back and only four percent of the babies um in the control group gave the fruit back to adults the adult just because they dropped it. So the second experiment was with some different babies. This time parents were asked to bring in their infants just before snack time. So the babies would be hungry because of this change. The research team carried out the same experiment as before. There were some fluctuations, but the overall results were similar. Um, in all 37% of the experimental group of infants offered their fruit to the adult while none of the infants in the control group showed that altruism. So, um, interesting. Yeah, so um, it was. It's noteworthy that the infants often uh, the infants offered up the fruit just as often during the first trial uh, as when they were hungry. So all of that. It's um, almost gonna stop. I know. I keep looking at that the wheel at the corner. The the wheel is slowing, and then I'm surprised that it's still able to move. That's that's it's it's doing great. Pretty friction free, and that coffee has been out for quite a while. It's probably not burning my hand anymore. (laughs) 
but on to some really great news. Netflix just released a feature that finally uh, stops auto-playing. So if you would like to do this, I don't mean to... There was so much rejoicing by all the nerds. <laughs> yes. Let me see if I have... Um... There's so many... I, I've, I've read so many posts of like, not about Netflix, just like, if you were God, what would be one thing that you would change in our universe? And we were like... Uh, stop the autoplay on Netflix <laughs> app. So I'm not quite sure why they the the article I read kind of um, attributed it to this one random lady's tweet, but that doesn't seem at <laughs> no, all. Everybody knew about it. Yeah. So um, I don't have. I used to have the not nerd sting, but oh, is it going to stop? It's so <sighs> close. Hear it grinding. <laughs> Almost. It's. We're just gonna watch until it ends now. Especially since I can't find the thing that I'm looking for, so I'll just keep looking for it. Oh, there it is. Uh, it's definitely lopsided. It pauses as it goes up the hill. Oh, yeah, the one side of that cam, is that what that is? Is heavier? Yeah, well, it's lifting a piston and then dropping the piston. So on the on the uphill side of the piston... It has to push it up. Has to, yeah, it lifts against gravity. It is pretty impressive how long that... Yeah. Well... <laughs> We're just stare at that for the last time. So, well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll quick tell you how to uh, stop your auto playing. And I don't mean to steal from the, um, the not nerd pro tip, uh, bell, but oh. you click on your profile, uh, and go to the message, uh, go to manage profiles next. You'll see. And then you, if you have separate profiles, you click into your own, obviously you'll notice that quote autoplay previews while browsing on all devices is checked by default. Just uncheck that hit save and you're on the road. So please do that because there's nothing that fills me with anxiety more than having to like quick go through the things fast enough that that stupid thing won't start to autoplay. Well, and Antarctica logged its hottest day on record with getting to be about 65 degrees, 64.9 degrees. Uh, The previous record was from 2015. Um, So blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of that. Um, And speaking of crazy weather, did you see that? those people on I-84 had to be rescued by helicopter. No. There's uh, uh, out in Umatilla, so flooding shut down multiple areas of I-84 for hours earlier on Friday, including Hermiston, Ontario, Baker City, uh, and Baker City. So the waters rose quickly, and due to a perfect storm, that's usually where it's blowing dust area, but <laughs> then it was blowing water everywhere. Um, so Friday evening, they had to, uh, at least 26 people had to be airlifted out of flooding areas. What? So, um, the drinking water should be fine. They said, Oh, uh, it's almost, <laughs> almost gosh. Uh. <laughs> it's like it's waiting for the Ulu, the Ulu or not the Ulu disc, the Oilers disc. Or, yeah. That I got stuck to my stupid, <laughs> huge fishing magnet, and I had to hit it off with a hammer, and, and it, it stopped. stopped. So how far are we in? That is almost 40 minutes. 
That's really that, impressive. That lasted maybe give or take five of when we did the opening. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Thirty-five took. minutes, and that's not the the coffee or the water wasn't even straight off the. No, that's straight pretty awesome. Thing. Wow, nice. Um, so anyway, there's also a huge landslide in um, in Washington State on on I five uh, on that same Friday that is shut down I five. So couple uh, one more story here: Oregon stores could be soon be required to accept cash. So this kind of taps into that same thing that brought me all of the rage at the parking thing is that you don't take away an option because so we'll, we'll, we'll get into it here. <laughs> so the proposal act as some op- opposition from business lobbyists who testify Monday that retailers have many legitimate reasons not to accept cash. Um, but they said that those uh, the police and practice policies and practices that appear legitimate at first glass. Uh, glance can still be exclusionary, said one of the bill's sponsors. What we're trying to address is essentially what some people would call, quote, backdoor discrimination. So House Bill 4107, backed by many Democrats and three Republicans, would also outlaw discrimination. This is weird. Would outlaw discrimination based on someone's hairstyle. Hmm. So that's strange that that still exists. But Uh, Both types of those bans on hairstyles or using cash have outsized impacts on people of color um, and people who are uh, poor since they don't may not have cards or may not have a phone for the stupid app that you're stuck at looking at in the driving rain, for instance. Um, So people of color are five times more likely. Ooh, is our guest here? He might be. Okay. I'll finish this up. Don't bother yourself. I'll just finish this up. Uh, People of color are five times more likely than white people not to have access to banks, uh, she said. More than 16% of African-American families and 14% of Latino families were unbanked, which is an an interesting term, um, compared to only 3% of white families. uh, That was in 2017. Um, But the representative said the bill was also driven by data privacy concerns. Uh, She said it's the ability for people to buy things that are just basic things, food, a cup of coffee, without having to enter into a third-party financial relationship. Uh, That would I totally agree with, too. So um, the organ director of the National Federation of Independent Businesses said his group opposed the bill. He said some business owners actually prefer customers pay with cash, but others rarely make cash sales. So deciding what types of payments to accept is driven by concerns about efficiency, safety, and security. What's, li- what's more secure than having cash in hand? Um, so the law would also exclude roadside stands, mobile food carts, and some airport businesses, and it would not apply to purchase of fuel, rental deposits, or sales that happen over the internet. Huh. So, so uh, there's a poke place downtown that's, we're cashless, uh, which was just so pretentious, and I... I wanted to just throw the poke <laughs> throw, back at her. <laughs> throw <laughs> <was> coins like, <laughs> at them. <laughs> right. uh, and and I can see where that would be exclusionary to people experiencing hopeless, homelessness in, the, in that yeah. area and, and, and stuff. Um, and on the other side, I do see that if you're at a high risk of being robbed. held up or yeah. ro- robbed, uh, that... Yeah, that was one less, safety concern. Less cash on hand. You, you know. just put one of those drivers carry no cash signs on the window. Right. Or <laughs> a, a drop safe, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's what every 7-Eleven has. Right. 7-Eleven oh, yeah. better not go all cashless. Yeah. <laughs> um, this would also allow <laughs> business. stuff on your app. Ugh. 
every time they ask me. The answer is still no. It's taken me longer to say no than it did for me to throw my dollar bill at you. Uh, this bill will also allow businesses to refuse coins to cover transactions of $100 or more or to not accept 50 or or $100 bills. And those things, I think, I'm, I'm fine with that. So Sure. Huh. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the steam has has <laughs> la, has run out of my out of my stories, much like it has stopped uh, fueling that that wheel over there. So um, we're going to take a short break here, and then we will come back with our very special guest. Uh oh, that was not the right button. <laughs> uh, so we will be right back. Yeah, it's so funny. So I bought a a pair of binaural binaural uh, binaural <laughs> uh, microphones. Oh really? Um, and um, are you starting an ASMR channel? But is that <laughs> I might. What does that mean? Between two, except for two R each ear. So these are microphones. Oh, no, oh. these are microphones. So what it does is it goes in your ear and the microphone and so the solid part it's is like... is touching your head and the microphone is facing out and so it's capturing what your ear hears including the resonance inside your head because it's right up against the bones and therefore like here oh wow right i don't i don't know <laughs> if i like that idea <laughs> and so have so, you tried them yet? And, and I've that's experimented to do, with them say, a little bit. Did you just want to experiment, or what yeah. did you buy them for? Just yeah. The, yeah. But then you can do, like the, yes, snap exactly. air like uh-huh. around your head, or yeah, so <laughs> or combing uh, we'll your do that. combing your whiskers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so professionally, do you go by Steve or Steven? Oh, have we started? Uh, uh, started oh, recording, it's recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, Steve or Steven? Steve. Steve. Yeah. And uh, how do you pronounce your last name? Reckant. Reckant. Yeah. Reckant. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we were both of us realized we had never said it out loud until now. <laughs> and oftentimes when you read a name on Facebook, like either you exclude letters or add letters, you know, as you're scrolling by. Just oh, yeah. To like, that word looks like that. That'll be their new last name now. And everyone like, I've ever seen, uh, I, I, not everyone, but almost everyone's like, oh, Renkant. I'm like, I was going to say, is there, I thought there was an N in your name, <laughs> nope. but I guess there, there is at the okay. end of it. Okay, but not Renkant. in the middle. But not in the middle. One, right. Everyone only one N. wants to say Renkant so why, or Reckhart. Why do we want to say Renkant? It's I not like no it's idea. similar to a word that you know we use and are comfortable with, but that's exactly what was in my head it's too. weirdly common, and I don't know. Do um, N's usually come before K's in words a lot? Mm. No. Lenken. Renken. Renken. There's regular R O E N T G. Yeah, the unit of radiation. Yes. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yes. Renkens. One redkin is a thousand ergs or whatever. <laughs> it's, seven, it's not. But. Seven bananas. <laughs> uh, so uh, today on the Mark and Todd cast, we have Steve Reckant. Reckant? Steve Reckant. Reckant. Reckant with us. And um, 
so we uh, almost spoke nothing about you because we <laughs> we don't know a lot about your history. We know that you're a veterinarian, and I believe that you work for the Center for Disease Control. But I will let you. I, I'm making things up right now. Uh, so in our uh, head, well, yeah, it's been. Oh no, now it's too low. Oh. Um, yeah, because in my head, you're one of those. Every once in a while, I meet people where. Like, I don't, I probably asked specifically what you've done, but it's kind of grown into this international man of mystery thing yeah. in my head. <laughs> so like, to me, you're the person in the movie that's like, who gets, who has to make that phone call, like, <laughs> Senator, we've got to shut everything down or whatever. So what, what is your, wh- who is Steve? Yeah. And yeah. what does he do? So I, I am a veterinarian, as you guys, that part is And is that on. what you went to school for? Yeah, Obviously, so I went I to. I guess you don't just trip into becoming a vet, veterinarian. <laughs> I, it, it, I certainly did not. Okay. Um, at my vet school, there are a couple of tracks. You might consider compare them to majors in undergrad. You can be a small animal tracker, where you do cats and dogs. It can be a large animal, so food, uh, production animals, uh, equines is own track. We had a mixed track, which was kind of a bit of everything, and then we had a fifth one, which was public corporate, oh, which wow. is even more of a catch-all i guess it's everything from zoo and wildlife to oh, okay. policy to that kind of thing and so I corporate to do... veterinarian is not often two words you hear together they're not but if you think about a but bristol yeah, Myers squib and... or any sort of research oh. company oh. any pharmaceutical has veterinarians because before you go to human testing someone's, with a lot of these someone's got to feed the monkeys right huh? Yeah, so I had, uh, after taking a couple of those early classes in public health, or I guess more epidemiology, realized that public health was really interesting to me, uh, found a place that had dual degrees. So I went to school where I could get the DVM, the Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, and a Master of Public Health uh, through the same program. Did that public corporate track. um, And our fourth year was kind of bouncing around, trying different things. I got to do a bunch of different government uh, positions for about a month at a time, federal, state, local, just try it all. And related to veterinarianism. It, yeah, is it's that all a word? V- veterinarianism. It probably is not what I have uh, heard or said before. <laughs> um, Everything's an ism these days. Sure. Um, one of the ones I really liked though was at the state health department in Virginia, where you were kind of putting out different fires every day. You know, one day you're meeting with uh, a bunch of folks who are working on policies for unowned cats. The next day you're talking to farmers about policies in uh, every April. Uh, there are outbreaks of salmonella because people get baby chicks for Easter. Uh-huh. So the health department works with feed stores and other places. And the next day you're talking about rabies and livestock. So that variety is something I really liked. Um, that said, my next step after vet school was a research job at a place called Plum Island. I will let you guys go look up the uh, wiki page and the conspiracy theory I'm section is kind of fun. <laughs> um, but I say that because I I wanted that variety and I ended up doing kind of the same thing. Research is kind of the same thing mm-hmm. pretty consistently for a while, but the work was pretty interesting and a place you can do just about, uh, you can do that kind of work just about nowhere else. Uh, studying a virus called foot and mouth disease virus, mm-hmm. maybe better understood as hoof and mouth. Uh, it's related to hand, foot, and mouth disease virus that mm-hmm. kids get, and it's pretty common. But this one is of livestock, and we don't have it in this country. Uh, Plum Island actually has an exception to have the virus on U.S. shores. 
So I was there for a wow. couple of years. So it's a for real island, it looks like. It is. It is off the coast of Long Island in New York. I took a boat to work every day. Wow. Um, I took Dramamine every day as well. <laughs> uh, but that was two and a half years up there doing research. Oh, this, is, that's, this place is fascinating. Holy cow. Yeah, what'd you find? Uh, well, I'm just yeah, quickly going to 40 foreign animal diseases, hog cholera, mm-hmm. and African swine fever. Uh, Biosafety Lady 3 Agriculture, blah, blah, blah. This is, yeah, it's like this is the super secret testing ground of like. <laughs> it has that reputation. I uh, So I played in the town band in Connecticut. And what when instrument I, do you play? I play the, the horn. Okay. Also knows the French horn, I guess. The French horn. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Does that take primacy over horns? Was that the original horn? Like, why does that get the. <laughs> it's not really called the French horn. It's, oh, I'm, okay. I'm just being kind of particular yeah, when yeah, I say yeah. it's not the French horn. No, this is the perfect <laughs> um, place. To, yeah. <laughs> welcome to this podcast. Uh, yeah. I mean, everyone knows it as the French horn. I think it uh, on scores, it shows up as horn in F, which okay. is the key that it's in, or F horn. Okay. And. <laughs> From there, horn, horn. Well, oh, so then, horn. It, then it got extrapolated to French. Yeah, I'm huh. sure somewhere along the line. Interesting, that, but oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but so how the, long is a French oh. horn if you just like unwound it and oh, just made know. it like a long? Because there's a lot of stuff going on. In there's that French a lot horn. of tubing. So a single horn. Um, this is not what I talked <laughs> about. Sorry. Wow, uh, that's okay. No, so I play <laughs> a double horn. I said it's the horn in F. There's a trigger that actually you have two horns in one which changes the key Ooh! so a single horn i think this is casting way back has about 20 feet of tubing wow oh i'm i'm mistaken so google google says how long is a french horn 13 feet is exactly wow (laughs) but still i mean that's i would say that's That's still in the ballpark that's a lot that's like intestines long (laughs) (laughs) i I couldn't tell you for a human i used to know for all the other animals oh funny yeah (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to distract there. That's okay. <laughs> but so I was playing horn with the town band in uh, Old Lyme, Connecticut, and when I said that I played there, all of a sudden everyone moved their chairs away because Plum Island is super scary and the secretive place. And uh, fortunately, they've done a whole bunch of more outreach and working with interested parties, you know, stakeholders is the kind of term of art to get them on the island and take a tour and mm. see that it's not that scary. You know, we have family day every year where friends and family of uh, people on the island come and it's kind of like a town carnival almost. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not in the research labs, of course. Right. But it used to be Fort Terry back in the tw- 1920s, I believe, uh, and, and before. So they had like a parade ground and somewhere on the internet, there's pictures of me like sitting in a dunk tank and just getting ready for kind of a right. you know, fair atmosphere kind of thing there and demystifying nice. the place a bit. Nice. So I went from there uh, as an O-Rise fellow, which is a, a program to kind of get uh, students right out of school into interesting places like this to uh, an inspector actually of labs like this so usda inspects a bunch of labs um, in cooperation with cdc depending on the pathogen so if it affects uh, primarily humans cdc goes in uh should i explain what cdc is sure yeah, yeah sure absolutely. it's the centers for disease control and prevention it's a group that is mostly based out of atlanta it's uh an arm of the department of health and human services so focus on human health Um, I was working for the Department of Agriculture. So if the pathogen is more based on animal exposures, 
then USDA regulates it. If it is more human, CDC regulates it. And that's part of the select agent program. So I was there for two years. And from there, I got my current job where I'm technically still a USDA employee. I'm on loan to the CDC as part of something called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. So it's a two-year training program focused on outbreak investigation. Do you get your little a little badge? I don't have a, a badge. fold-down wallet or no, whatever. No, I am an EIS officer, but no badge, no oh, gun, alas, no. No. <laughs> no, there are some. There are Just vials of cholera. <laughs> as far as I know, there is one set of USDA employees that are issued a gun. Um, and these are the tick riders. These are guys that ride on the Texas-Mexico border ah. looking for cattle and other uh, livestock. Uh, a species called a nilgai has been weirdly a problem here. Um, and they are they have the potential to carry ticks across the border mm. to uh, infect the domestic cattle herd with uh, a disease that we eradicated from the country a while ago. The idea being that if they can ride the border, they're not shooting the cattle, but that's uh, they are armed for a, a variety of reasons is the sense I get. Yeah. But they are keeping diseases out in a, a different way than I am, certainly. Right, right. right. Uh, but this, so EIS is a two-year training program and you're sent to, you, uh, there are two main arms of the program. You can be based in Atlanta, uh, at a headquarters position. There are a couple of headquarters spots around the country as well where you have a specific topic focus. It might be foodborne disease. It might be HIV. It might be smoking and health. And you're based out of Atlanta. You do that topic wherever it comes up. Some of those positions are domestic-based. Some of those are international-focused. Uh, the flip side is something like what I do where they take someone uh, and they you get to do a bit of everything but only for one spot. So I am USDA employee on loan to CDC, effectively on loan to the state of Oregon. So I work in the state health department and whatever comes in the door. I've been part of groups working on everything from climate change to measles to vaping, kind of whatever it is. Uh, I, again, I wanted that variety that I got yeah. in vet school and I was able to find it in something like this. What? What? what how would global warming play into where it would fall into your jurisdiction. Sure. That's actually a project across different parts of the health department. As far as a veterinarian, as far as communicable, communicable disease gets involved, uh, one of the main ways is expansion of vector ranges. So we think about ticks and mosquitoes being pretty um, geographically restricted to where they're going. They like certain environments, but as climate changes, those environments are going to change. So they're going to move higher and lower, be it elevation or, uh, or or latitude. And people and animals and plants are going to be exposed to pests that they hadn't been exposed to mm. before. Oh, wow. Interesting. So what totally point in your education did you have to be told global warming was a hoax and now you just have to lie to the public? Is that, <laughs> is that after fourth year? Is that Man, I, I, it's funny you say that. I remember... Gosh, four or five years ago now, I got just a random survey call and someone is asking questions about climate change, this kind of thing. And I can tell where they're going. And I just spot like, come on, like, maybe I can help you out. I, you know, anthropogenic climate change is real. And he, the guy just exhaled. He's like, oh, thank you. That like checks off the next seven or eight questions. 
and it was you know i'd imagine not how many of his calls went that day right but is that the is that the fancy word for man man man-made climate change what word did you use uh anthropogenic so anthro meaning human Uh genic meaning generated okay so anthropogenic climate change is climate change caused by humans okay Okay, so that lands you. Now, how did you, because uh, we know you through our friend, mutual friend Brian. Yes. So, and you grew up with, how did, did you just happen to end up here as well? Uh, pretty much. So Brian and I were college roommates. Okay, yeah, yeah. But as far yeah. as me coming to Oregon, every year uh, EIS has a conference in April, which is, uh, April or May, I believe it's getting pushed. Uh, it's early May this year. Uh, free to attend. <laughs> a lot of fun. And... Uh, you have the only people presenting at this conference are current officers and uh, a couple of associated program people from associated programs. The incoming officers are undergoing what I can only describe as a week long speed date, where the positions that are looking for a new officer are there, and the new officers are there, and you just talk to people all day, Monday through Thursday. Friday, you have formal interviews, and then it's a match process. You rank your list, they rank the officers, and the magic box spits out one name. Uh, I remember I had my interview Friday. I went to actually a family friend's wedding over the weekend, and I went into the office on the following Monday, and I got an email around 10.30 with the list. (laughs) And uh, the first person I called actually was Brian. I had to wait a little bit because it was not... uh, not a polite time to call Pacific time. Right. I was in Virginia at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I put my list together and I matched to Oregon. I had never been here before August of 2018, wow. uh, which is when I moved out. Wow. That's quite a change. Yeah, it's been great, though. I knew kind of from the start that this was a two-year adventure. Right. Um, the way my contract is structured, I actually go back to USDA when I'm finished. And most likely that means going back east. Uh, so I knew I had two years and wanted to make the most of it. I'd been hearing for quite a while from Brian, uh, how great Portland and just generally the state of Oregon is obviously partially because he hasn't left. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it's been, been a lot of fun to both stay plenty busy with work, but also to get to explore while I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good person to explore through. Yes. Yes. He, he opens a lot of weird doors that perhaps you wouldn't. And you were there for the genesis of the. That could be a whole other podcast itself. You can yes. you have behind the behind the scenes tea on on the creation of the Unipiper. Yeah, back when I, back in college, I saw him. I, I was his roommate when he was learning to ride a unicycle and to play the bagpipes as separate skills. <laughs> We yeah we've no, heard just, the origin story. Bash my from, face from, yeah. again. <laughs> You've been doing that a lot. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, we've heard the origin, the Unipiper origin story a, a few times, and uh, yeah, I because when we go to booths with him yeah. and, and stuff, he inevitably it was funny the first time i just kind of did that out of rote memory like when he wasn't around or something like that i'm like well did you know and i was like oh my gosh i guess i do know that whole story now (laughs) found a unicycle in a dumpster yeah (laughs) well let's kind of turn then to um the coronavirus that's happening right now then this comes uh not the first time that there's been kind of public fervor about i pulled up this list of um <laughs> oh i think nick just <laughs> buried under a pile of plates in there so the swine flu and the zika virus and ebola and there was a couple other sars, SARS. was a big one now those clearly are all all worth being 
being concerned about clearly, but as this coronavirus kind of keeps making the news, where do, how do you feel the coverage is not, you know, how, is it too alarmist? Is it not alarmist enough? Is it, mm-hmm. is it doing a good job? Like, where do you see, see that? Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, it, it's interesting you mentioned SARS. I think there was a lot of the coverage, um, around SARS back in 2003, information really was not flowing all that well. And contrast that to what's going on now, uh, within, gosh, it was about 10 days or so of the outbreak being declared, the genetic sequence of this virus was publicly available. Uh, there are case counts being updated. I have um, up on my screen, actually, the, the folks at Johns Hopkins have put together yeah, this great that. GIS map, which um, updates, I think it's updating twice a day. And it's got the number oh, of sure. yeah, okay. I've seen oh, cases. And the countries where they are, it's got the number of deaths, the total rec- uh, amount of people recovered, and the locations there. And information is really moving well in, in this outbreak on a public health level. I think it's important. Uh, there are things that make the news that overshadow things that are perhaps more of a threat that people might forget about. Um, one of the things we talk about a lot in public health is that your risk is based on your exposure. So this is definitely real. There are over 40,000 cases of this uh, of this disease. Um, that said, all but about 300 of them uh, are in mainland China right now. And there are 12 cases confirmed in the United States. All of them, as, as far as it's been reported, have been to an area in mainland China where there was transmission or are a Excuse me, or they are a close contact of a confirmed case. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we do know about coronaviruses in general. So you mentioned SARS. SARS is also a coronavirus. Okay, I was going to ask, what is the coronavirus? Yeah, well, it's it's funny because a lot of times you hear a family name for a virus or bacterium, and they're named the same way because they're closely related. Coronaviruses are a little bit different in that they're named by how they look under a microscope. They're a virus with a crown corona meaning crown so uh, these are these viruses are covered in these spike proteins and that's how they get access into cells sars is a coronavirus uh mers coronavirus so middle east respiratory syndrome that came up uh emerged around 2012 also coronavirus the three of them are what are known as uh, beta coronaviruses so there are four main families within coronaviruses, alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. The alpha and beta are the only groups known to infect humans. And actually, coronaviruses are really pretty common. There are f- seven human pathogenic coronaviruses. We talked about three of them, SARS, MERS, and I guess we haven't actually named this one. This is being known right now as 2019 novel coronavirus. Uh, it's not it very will, catchy. It is <laughs> not all that catchy. Better marketing it, it team. needs a better marketing team. Totally. It does. He's more zazz. But I, I actually want to kind of talk about that in that. So SARS and MERS are uh, a reflection of trying not to name, try not to stigmatize places based on a disease. You, oh, you mentioned sure. Ebola. Oh. E- the Ebola virus is named for the Ebola River. Wow. And it occurs other places, but it was just found there. That's like the band Anthrax. 
they they picked the wrong that the Ebola River. They need a performance on the Ebola River. Sure. <laughs> and when you hear Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, right? Um, a lot of the cases were in the geographic area, of the Middle East, but it is elsewhere as well. And uh, I actually only learned this recently. So SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, it sounds pretty, uh, I guess, clinical, not geographic based. But there's some, depending on who you ask, some thinking that there is a geographic uh, bent to it because some of the first cases were in Hong Kong, which is a special autonomous region. Uh, oh, wow. So it is known as the Hong Kong SAR. Huh. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And that's giving Americans a lot of credit for knowing anything about right. <laughs> China other than our plastics come from there. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. Th- there will likely be a, uh, a less unwieldy name than 2019 and right. COV. Right. And they didn't call it the Wuhan virus or anything Correct. like that, which is, which is actually, uh, notable and, and, uh, that makes, right. So makes some of the sense. first cases yeah. were in Wuhan city, uh, which is in Hubei province and is still, as I look at this now, um, a significant majority of the deaths have occurred in Hubei province. And if I can switch my tab real quickly of the 40,000 cases, almost 30,000 of them have been in Hubei province. Um, is this, are these things related? Like what, like what are the symptoms? Are they just where they always say flu-like symptoms? Is this the same? They are. So, and are they related to the flu? These, these viruses, they are not genetically related to the flu. They are, however, related to the common cold. I mentioned there are seven human pathogenic coronaviruses. We talked about three of them. There are four others and they cause, uh, depending on which study you're looking at between 10 to 30% of all you know, things we know as of the common cold, know of as the common cold. And one of the differences between those four and these more pathogenic three is where they infect. Uh, I mentioned those spike proteins. The place that a virus tends to affect, infect and the symptoms that result are based on where the virus goes. So those spike proteins for the four milder diseases have an attraction to cells that tend to be in the upper respiratory tract. So think in the nose and, and kind of that area, which means that you get a runny nose, you cough, maybe a sore throat. Whereas SARS, MERS, and 2019 and COV, those coronaviruses have uh, what's called a tropism. So that's where they're attracted to go. That's where they can best bind to cells in the lower respiratory tract. So we tend to see pneumonia as one of the main signs with this. Mm. Uh, that said, the signs are pretty nonspecific. With this one, you see mostly fever, cough, and shortness of breath or difficulty breathing are the shared signs with a bunch of these. One of the interesting things, and I'm, I'm forgetting which, uh, I think it was SARS, it might have been MERS, and I apologize for not knowing which, is that their target was mostly the lower respiratory tract, respiratory tract but also in the kidneys. Hmm. So in addition to respiratory symptoms, there were renal symptoms um, for some folks with uh, with SARS, which also caused the disease to be a bit more severe. So is there a, a treatment for this? It sounds like we're always announcing an award winner. The 2019, <laughs> whatever, Nova virus. 
there are a couple of things that are being looked into. There's no specific treatment for this one. Symptomatic care is the recommendation at this point. Uh, there are a couple of antiviral medications that have been shown in in research, either you know in vitro, like in um, in cell culture. I don't know about animal studies using some of these antivirals to show effects against SARS and MERS and other viruses. Uh, there have been reports about a bunch of folks, federal uh, and private, or governmental and private, working on vaccinations. You know, like I said, the genetic sequence was known really pretty quickly. And if we know how the virus gets into our cells, we know what to block. And that's mm -hmm. again what a vaccination does. It trains your immune system. It builds antibodies with a specific target. And if they can block that on the virus, then the virus can't get into your cells. That said... That is, uh, I believe, a minimum of about six months away between some pre-human testing, often cell culture, um, possibly animal models, and then uh, there are three more months. So three months for the pre-human testing and then three months for what are called stage one clinical trials, which essentially take healthy people and this, uh, whatever the new treatment is, in this case a vaccination, expose them to it, so vaccinate them. And you see if there are effects, right? So with any treatment, we want two things. We want it to work, but we also don't want it to cause problems. Right. So the first hurdle is actually checking off that second box, is making sure that just with healthy people, this won't cause problems. After that, there is opportunity for some federal uh, permissions to kind of use either compassionate use or emergency use uh, authorizations, things like that, to get this vaccine to the people that would need it Again, if it's been proven to be effective and safe um, in a way that's usually a bit quicker than the normal approval process because the outbreak dictates that. Dictates right. that. Wow. In, in all of these uh, viral outbreaks over the years, and, and there seems to be a ebb and flow and a, uh, a rise and fall. Is, is the fall the... Uh, quenching of the outbreak is that primarily man-driven uh, uh, like are we doing things to shut it down and if we didn't do those things would it just continue to outbreak or is there mutations that uh, come into play here and and shift I, uh, yeah do you no, understand I, the gist of what I'm what I'm asking is like I do uh, are we are we if we let this go, would it kill everybody, or is it uh, <laughs> less than that? <laughs> sure. Well, and and uh, one of the reasons I have been so busy at work at the health department is because these public health actions have been shown to be effective. Um, SARS is actually a pretty helpful example, um, and the characteristic of that virus does help us out a little bit in that with SARS, you show symptoms before you can shed the virus. So if I, mm. I don't. If I had SARS right now um, and I'm healthy, I'm not shedding virus. I can't infect you guys. So if I know that the moment I start feeling these symptoms, you know, this is one of the first times they used uh, the temperature scanners in the airports. Right. And that was a way, actually, and somewhat coincidentally, my research at Plum Island was also based on infrared cameras, uh, just of cattle for different diseases. But... Why lot. do airports have those in general? Is it for bomb seeking? Like what else would you be able to tell at an airport with a, a thermal de I was going to say thermal detonator. Like, like yeah, I, I don't know scanner. if they were actually installed 
much before this. They were added or at least used. I, I But this would this they probably are doing it for outbreaks like this, or is it just kind of a nice thing to have in case of Because we knew with SARS that you were symptomatic before you shed the virus, before you were uh, infectious, it was an effective thing to have. Interesting. It's. I have not been involved in the screening at airports uh, with this outbreak, so I don't know. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Is this is this virus something that? Uh, wh- how, why is this one such a big deal? When I mean, like, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I feel like both of us are like we want to ask a question, but we're not smart enough to know how to ask the question we want to know. So you're gonna have to fill in a lot of blanks. Sure, I, I, I want to actually just kind of come back and complete yeah. the story from the yeah. SARS and what public health can do. In that, the actions of quarantining people once we got ahead of it really did help bring that outbreak to a close. Um, because we knew what the exposure was, and because we could help prevent person-to-person transmission with that being symptomatic before your infectious part, that helped a lot of the public health interventions be you know, as effective as they could have been. Um, but as for where this virus came from, there's a bunch of research pointing to bats, not as the direct source of transmission, but there are a number of viruses that just kind of can circulate in bats and they're not affected by them. Um, and I, I'm actually reminded frequently uh in in this job of uh, an old friend who was working all on interfacing this idea that there's her 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 research was looking in africa and talking about uh parasite burden in livestock but it's generally this idea that as humans and animals interact more they're gonna share more things including diseases so uh yeah it is that kind of more interaction that we think about so being a veterinarian, working in public health, one of the viruses I think about most often is rabies. Uh, totally unrelated to this. They're completely different kind of things. In this country, most of the cases of rabies, and there are vanishingly few, but most of the cases are not exposure to bats, even though bats... Oh, sorry, I take that back. Most of the cases are exposure to bats. But one of the most effective ways we've gotten rid of rabies in this country, we've um, limited, mostly eliminated human transmission, is vaccinating our pets. Hmm. Because I don't run into that many bats, but if you let your dog out in the backyard, there's a higher likelihood they will. And vaccinating your pet is a way to protect you Mm -hmm. because you're not going to meet the bat, but there's a small non-zero chance that your dog would and then... If your dog became rabid and bit you, that would affect you. So it's that, uh, it's almost the the anthropology part more and how people move around and how they interact with animals that is driving a bunch of these. Hmm. That's fascinating. There have been a bunch yeah. of reports from from this trying to find a, uh, I think secondary host is the, is, is the term back with SARS. There was a bunch of evidence that a species, among others, um, called the palm civet, was a uh, was a link in the chain. And just some of the initial cases or initial reports when they did that contact tracing were in people who were trading palm civets because there are live markets sometimes that are implicated in these outbreaks. And again, it's bringing. I don't think I know that word. Civet. Pa- a palm civet. A palm civet. Uh, civet cat. 
Uh, in fact, oh, okay. if you've heard of civets, you may have actually heard of civet coffee. Yes, I have heard of that. Yeah. Do you know why it's called civet coffee? It's the poop coffee. It the is. The cat poop coffee. Right. So the cats eat the beans and the okay. coffee is actually made from uh, what they uh, defecate, what, what comes out. And a... Oh my gosh, that is pictures. not yes. what I thought of. I, <laughs> I was thinking more more cat-like. That is a cute creature of horror, I yeah. think is what that is. It's terrifying <laughs> and adorable. Not not ungenerous. <laughs> um, is this yeah. something, not to get too into a conspiracy theory, but is this something that human beings, in a, a, a sort of virus human beings could create in a lab and like it got out or whatever, or is like, can humans do that? Just make new, new crazy viruses that if they escape, it'll take, or is that, I mean, I don't know why, why they would do that. Um, well, so I'm reminded of a, gosh, a story now, two or three years ago. So smallpox is a virus. We are all understandably not worried about because we have no exposure, but is, was scary when it was around. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years ago, uh, there's a researcher who, using commercially available sequences, was able to buy a bunch of um, products and work in his lab. And I f he spent on the order of, I think, twenty to $30,000. And he was able to recreate uh, a virus called horsepox, <laughs> which is related. Honestly, if you name a species, they probably have their own pox virus. Mm. But more just, uh, he claimed it was showing that it was doable right. because the sequence information is available. available. Um, Just a little that is theory to practice. That is Mark yeah. in his garage creating horse pox. <laughs> it and takes Nick a little comes bit in more. And, and knocks the <laughs> knocks the tray of glass vials over. And <laughs> so wow. I, I suppose that is conceivable right. that someone uh, could be behind this. But um, there's been so whenever there's an, uh, an incursion like this, a spillover event. Uh, or a suspected one, there is sampling both for antibodies and for the virus in species we might expect, or suspect rather. Uh, antibodies showing that this animal has been exposed to the virus previously and has developed an immune response. Um, and you can also sometimes find the virus itself there as well. And one of the ways we trace back to those animals is just kind of one of the basic tenets of public health is you have a bunch of sick people and you ask, What'd they do? What were their exposures? Um, Raise your hand if you've recently been bitten by a bat. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. There's but some answer. of them aren't so obvious when right. you find even a small group like the people trading palm civets. Yeah. And you're like, wait a second. We might expect kind of, I don't know, 10% of them to have the flu at any one time. But if we see a lot of our cases clustered in this group, for example that kind of points us in the right direction. And there's still public health folks who are talking to people and ex assessing exposures. But you have a bunch of researchers who will then go and, and take a look at some of these potential theories, like the palm civet. And they mm -hmm. were able to find that they found, I forget if they found, I believe they did find virus circulating in the palm civets, not just antibodies, showing that these animals were both infected and possibly infectious. Hmm. I was going to ask that about bats and rabies too. Do does rabies affect bats, or is that just something that they've just got and doesn't do anything to them? It does affect some of them. Um, like, I guess, can you tell? Like, are the do the bats go crazy if they have it? Is there a way to tell if a bat is 
shifty or <laughs> uh, i would generally recommend avoiding contact with bats um i'm so and i think i told you this before like for some reason after i first met you i thought you had told me that no no you don't have to worry about bats and rabies and i think after that is when they're like i've lived a very small a very small house with a low roof and a bat got in and <laughs> was terrifying i like i don't have a problem with bats and they're fun because they're all out by my property and at twilight they all come out and feed and it's really cool but I'm glad I didn't know that else. I would have been much more, much more terrified of that bat being in my and house. And they're very important for ecosystem. We yeah, don't want yeah. to just get rid of all the bats to <laughs> get rid of the rabies um, because that would cause many, many other problems. And we'll all have the Zika virus from the mosquitoes. <laughs> Oregon is not uh, <laughs> so far uh, Zika free. Endemic transmission okay, of Zika. That's good. <laughs> uh, you can travel to certain areas just like with this virus, with the novel coronavirus. Um, so is this dead, is this virus deadlier than other things or people not like, why is this a bigger deal than other kind of like the really bad flu going on or, 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 yeah. Um, so I, I did a little bit of research beforehand nice. and at present, uh, we talk about in public health things like the case fatality rate. You know, if you were a case, uh, if you had a case of this disease, how likely was it that you died? Um, and one of the problems we have with public health sometimes, uh, with public health is that it can be a bit removed from the people. So we talk about, you know, the Johns Hopkins site lists 910 deaths due to novel coronavirus. Okay. Those are, <laughs> there goes plug. Well, here we go. Uh, those are 910 individual tragedies and it's important not to lose sight of that. Sure. But when we look at 910 deaths out of 40,000 cases, and I, I apologize. I think when I was doing this not half an hour ago, they were, uh, the numbers were slightly changed. But I think the percent is right. is is similar. You have about 2.3% case fatality rate. Um, one of the caveats with this outbreak in general is that it's still evolving. These are people who have died. Um, it is currently February 9th. The first cases were diagnosed on December 8th. Um, so, or first cases onset of symptoms were December 8th. So this is has been going on for a bit, but we're certainly not to the end of it. Um, so those numbers may change. But we talk about SARS and MERS, and SARS, if I, those numbers have not changed in the past uh, half hour or so. <laughs> Back in 2003, there were a little over 8,000 cases and almost 800 deaths. So the case fatality rate, a little under 10%. And then MERS, there were fewer cases um, about 2,500, but there were actually more deaths, uh, over 860 for a case fatality rate of about 34 and a half percent. Wow. And on a, an individual kind of rate basis, that's pretty high, especially compared to, to 2019 NCOV. Uh, at present, or at least some of the early reports showed that the people who were the sickest had some underlying conditions, which you might expect, especially early in an outbreak. So, but we're still learning a bit about this and what's going to, what the kind of final uh, case fatality rate, um, another term or number that got some, uh, some play recently in the news is R0. Um, it's the basic reproductive ratio. This kind of, it is a real number, but it's got to be applied in, the uh, in context to be helpful. So R0 is the concept of if there is one case of disease, how many more people will they get sick? Right. The 
very simple rule of thumb is if you can get the R, if the R naught is above one, the outbreak will stay steady or expand. So one person gets 1.5 people sick, on average, that disease is going to spread. If the R naught is, say, 0.7, that disease eventually uh, should go away because not everyone gets a new person sick and eventually that chain of transmission goes away. You can do certain things. So R naught is the value in in a vacuum, basically. You can do certain things with this population, vaccinate or treat or public health actions like quarantine or isolation, which can drive the effective reproductive ratio lower. And that's what public health generally endeavors to do. Um, so case fatality rate is one, R naught, and kind of the infectiousness is another. Um, I'm going to jump back, though, because I was also looking. Uh, we talk about the kind of new thing covering up or taking attention away from um, the the familiar thing, even when the familiar thing might be more of a worry. Mm. And in the past two years, um, the estimates have been, there have been uh, for influenza, there have been 80 million cases in the United States. Um, and... Uh, quick math a shade over a shade under sorry a hundred thousand deaths due to influenza now that's just in this country um that's two years combined um but when you compare it to forty thousand cases of coronavirus and 910 deaths the case fatality rate is lower for flu Mm -hmm. i think yep yep um but there's so many more cases and that's a thing I think is more important to worry right. about. If you're if you're freaking out about coronavirus, but you didn't get your flu shot, you're you're doing it wrong, <laughs> right? Um, humans are notoriously bad at risk assessment, uh, especially when it comes to big numbers. So it would make sense that folks are worried about Shh, this. I need to do my scratch off tickets. Yeah, <laughs> um, but that's certainly a factor. Oh, oh, no, you no, actually have Mark a Powerball ticket. A Powerball, <laughs> and we should say, of course, there win, are. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be not sharing with I was going to say who's you. not getting any of Mark's are, money if you win. There are of course non-mathematical factors that sometimes are at play when we talk about the lottery <laughs> and why it might be better or worse to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that if you are worried about coronavirus and not influenza, um, it's important to take a look at the numbers. And fortunately, the same you the ways you can protect yourself from coronavirus are the same as you can for influenza with the addition of not traveling to China because right. flu is pretty much, and, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe there've been plenty more cases of influenza in China than coronavirus, mm. even in this season. Of course. Yeah. But it's kind of simple things. It's covering your cough. It's staying home from work or, or school or social gatherings if you're sick. And it's honestly washing your hands. Washing your hands. Soap and water uh, is, is one of the most effective things you can do that's going to help prevent uh, getting the flu, or were you possibly exposed to it? You know, coronavirus is um, coronaviruses tend to not live on surfaces all that well, but that's still a reason to if you touch a doorknob um, in a healthcare setting. Again, there are many things that could be on there. It's unlikely to be novel coronavirus here, but like I said, ten to thirty percent of the common cold is caused by the other ones, so. They're, they're getting us no matter what. There is no escape. I have seen... That's going to be the big headline from this. There is no escape from the coronavirus. Uh, I have seen somewhere that 
you should expect that by I forget what age it is uh, into your twenties or thirties, you have you should expect to have been infected by a coronavirus, not this one, not, not the, the novel coronavirus, one, but one of those four that caused the common cold. If you've ever had the sniffles, there's high likelihood it was one of those uh, more wow mildly pathogenic coronaviruses. Interesting. How do they determine when an outbreak is run its course? Like uh, what? Because I figure that there's probably always going to be one or two people out there that (laughs) that still have it, or like yeah, does it ever go away? Does it ever go away? Or like uh, there are a couple terms we use in public health. Um, Endemic is one. So uh, a little Latin lesson, I guess. Uh, N meaning in and Endemic, uh, so demos meaning people. So it me- endemic means in the people. So with endemic diseases, uh, we think about those having, it might fluctuate a bit from year to year, but there's an expected number of cases, and that number is not zero, of certain diseases. Um, uh, influenza, depending on the year, can be considered endemic. Um, epidemic, epi meaning upon, is something basically new or higher. It could be a, a new um, new infection. It could be a one we know about just at higher levels. Um, but that's also epidemiology. It's the study of disease upon the people. Um, pandemic, pan meaning across. So if an epidemic is spanning geographic borders, it's often referred to as a pandemic. As far as diseases going away or not, uh, it's going to depend. Like I mentioned, SARS and MERS are both beta coronaviruses, somewhat similar to this one genetically. And SARS is, we're not reporting new cases of SARS. We're fairly confident the outbreak was contained. And again, that's because you had, uh, the pathology of the disease was you were symptomatic before you could transmit it. And that helped us contain it. <clears throat> Whereas there are still, there are not that many, but there are still cases of MERS being reported. So that has kind of settled into a, I'd have to check some of the numbers to be certain, but something more like endemic, Mm. endemicity. You just mentioned something, I had a question and I um, I lost it. Uh, Sorry. Do you know that at some point, 20% of people on earth were infected with swine flu? Or the terrifying Spanish flu of 1918. I wow. pulled up a. Uh, I was going to read them all, but I'm not. It was uh, history's deadliest, uh, deadliest pandemics, and so like the Black mm. Death. What mm-hmm. else do we have here? This is where I actually came across the picture of smallpox, which I'm mm. scrolling past yeah, right now. HIV/AIDS. Let's see, Spanish flu, whatever that is. Well, That's, so it's. I mean, yeah, we as humans are so vulnerable to this type of stuff it seems when you say this type of stuff do you mean the kind of uh attention or the pathogen um i guess a little bit of, of both it always it always fascinates me i guess from i don't know what standpoint it would be but like for all of our for all of human beings ability to adapt and overcome it's always whether it's the weather or whether it's a bat like 
we're surprisingly vulnerable in all of these ways that I guess we're beginning to control more and more, but it is, I mean, it is that teeny tiny thing you can't see with your eyeballs that can take us that, that, and that, that just fascinates me from, from that angle of, of for all, all we can do human beings were, we're still vulnerable to, to things like that. And that's why I kind of uh, leaned on that line early about risk is based on exposure, hmm. but it's tough to deal with those really small numbers sometimes or really big numbers. You know, if you have a very, very low likelihood of disease, but you hear that it's really bad if you get it, right? it's just human nature to focus on it's really bad if I get it, not I'm not going to get it. I'm not likely going to get it. Yeah. Right. Interesting. What else do you have, Mark? Anything? I feel like, again, I feel like I'm not, I'm, we'll have to have you, after I educate myself more, then we'll have to have you on for like real questions <laughs> no, that, that no. go on. No, this has been, this has been really, uh, really interesting. And, um, did you see this picture? I don't know. If, I don't know if it's Photoshopped or not. Of I, you know, the, I, the cat with the, with the, I saw <laughs> that one the mask on. And perhaps actually I will do a little public health, uh, PSA here. Yeah. Yes. Um, you should, if you are sick with the flu or something like that, you should wear a mask. Okay. Wearing those surgical masks is generally not going to protect you. Right. But it protects uh, Unless the someone others. sneezes like directly on you. <laughs> Into your mouth. Right. <laughs> Whereas so if you were wearing a surgical mask and you were sick and you coughed or sneezed, it would catch that. So, uh, I yeah. have seen more and more people just kind of wearing those out and about here. For what I mean, I don't think in response to this, I don't right. think they're doing it, but just no. And I, I, um, I, I uh, took a trip recently. Was in, was flying, and seeing people in airplanes. I don't know who was sick or not. People didn't yeah. necessarily appear sick, but to just wear a mask because you're worried uh, is not necessarily going to do all that much. I've also seen people wearing uh, what are called N95 masks. So these are something you might wear in like. Um, frankly, in a research lab, but, and those are filtering masks. Those are going to prevent, those are going to help prevent disease if you are exposed to something. That said, you have to make sure that you are medically cleared to wear one of those because it's not, I mean, it restricts your breathing some. You're breathing through a filter. The other thing is for it to work, you have to make sure that it's fit to your face. Um, And I, uh, I, I did see this a couple of places you also can't have facial hair because <laughs> the mask is supposed to seal to your face. Right. And if you've got a beard, have you ever seen uh, firefighters tend to have mustaches? Yeah. Oh, yep. yeah. There you go. Their that's breathing why. apparatuses are not. Yeah. Um, that's why we couldn't effective. have have facial hair in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So when you see, when I, I'm not, I frankly, I did see a handful of people at the airport with an N95 mask on and facial hair, and they would say, lift it every so often to put another bite of pizza or take another <laughs> bite of pizza. I'm like, well, that's not really helping you. Um, and because again, <laughs> risk is based on exposure. So there's basically no benefit to wearing those if you are in the States here, in, not, not around sick people. Right. If you're in a healthcare setting, if you're taking care of someone who's sick, that is a way and you know, consult guidance for a variety of places if that's appropriate. But it's, those masks are generally not helping you just, hanging out in the airport. Um, in fact, uh, if I were to do the math, I'm sure somewhere I could figure this out, that the increased risk of just general breathing problems and <laughs> uh, or whatever is are 
probably higher from wearing one of those when you don't need it than any help you'd get from preventing the nothing that you're not going to get because, <laughs> like I said, there are 12 cases in this right. country at the moment. Right. And they're all associated with either close contact to a known case or travel to one of these outbreak areas. Right. Right. That's so wash funny. your hands. Wash, wash your hands. hands. Well, shit. And so, I, I, should someone like me get a yearly flu shot? The flu is something I've never had in my life. Like it's not on my radar. And uh-huh. the, and so I always think, well, then I don't need it. But then it's like, but you're not getting it for me. I'm getting it. So I don't give it to Mark or whoever. Yeah. Uh, the- and is there a short out? And I always heard like, well, there's only a certain amount every year of that flu shot. Should I be taking that if, you know, grandma needs it or whoever? Uh, so two things there. One is generally yes. If you are healthy enough to get a flu shot, if you you know check with your doctor, if you have worries about um, how they're produced, um, I don't know if they're cell culture or eggs anymore. Um, but most people are healthy enough to get it, and you should. You mentioned grandma actually. Every year there is a, there's a differently formulated flu shot for geriatric populations hmm. with different strains or different amounts because of the change of their immune system. I think the risk of running out and you taking that flu shot that someone might need is... If only we had one more flu shot, right, then the president wouldn't be dead. Is low enough. And you, know, you hear sometimes that like, you might hear that someone says, oh, I got the flu from the flu shot. Oh, right. um, that is not the case. The flu shot is a uh, is a modified. I forget. Uh, flu shot. The it's dead, right? It is dead. Um, you're not going to get flu from the flu shot. It's training your immune system, and you know you might not feel great for a day or so as your immune system catches up, but you're not getting the flu. And you might also hear that sometimes it doesn't match all that well, like the vaccine is not great or something like that. Every year, it's shown that it might not prevent. It might not prevent all cases of the flu, but if you do get the flu, you're going to have less disease. It lowers your risk of hospitalization. It lowers the symptoms. It shortens how long you have the flu. And Todd, you were quite lucky to not have had it. As someone who has had the flu, something... Well, that's why I was going to ask. Like, I get a couple of colds a year, but, like, why don't I get the flu? Like, it goes around everywhere, and I'm around sick people. And that's always fascinated me because I don't... I mean, maybe I had it once when I was a kid or something, but not that I ever remember. That just seems strange to me. And you may. Um, one of the things to remember is that the way, so the way we report a case of the flu, someone has to get sick. They have to be sick enough to go to their doctor. The doctor has to decide that it's worthwhile to test. The test has to be done and reported. And each step along the way, you're going to kind of lose some people. So there are that's why that flu shot, the number of flu cases rather is an estimate because we extrapolate back from the number of the positive tests. Losses, yeah. hmm. So maybe you've gotten it and it was mild. Maybe you've just been lucky. There are a whole lot of people in this country. And you know, if about 10% of them get the flu every year, very rough estimate. Um, you know, your chances right. of escaping every year is 90%. I guess li- 90%. living by myself in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere probably <laughs> helps that, restrict that exposure. That certainly would. <laughs> but even still, get your flu shot. Get your flu okay, shot. Yeah. And, well, was, and, yeah, it's, and then it's uh, like you always hear like, well, the government knows you give it anything for free and they're giving you the flu shot. It's mind control. <laughs> 
but that's a different <laughs> that's yeah. next week's show yeah. <laughs> i hope you have a I, I have not studied that one well enough to uh <laughs> Awesome. Well, I are there. Is there any other big question? I feel like I could just sit here for the next six hours and, I, and no, talk we, about things. We've got a whole other show about conspiracy theories. That like, I, you know, I think that big pharma generates the common cold because it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, and and you're probably an uh, an agent of theirs. And so, even if we asked you that question, you responded that that's not a thing. I wouldn't believe it anyway. So, uh, uh, other than that. Uh, this has been super helpful. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. Very, very, very much so. So wash your hands, people. Cough into your elbow. Um, and you'll be good to go. What are we looking at? Did you want to oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so you were here. Uh, <clears throat> oh, yeah we, yeah. we recorded a little later today because you were busy doing something. Yes. Uh, tell and also what, because what we're, we're going to go see the Tesla coil and we're going to go see oh, Tesla at coil Quarterland. Um, what uh, you're part of a you volunteer for a clinic uh, and uh, yeah, tell so us about that. I uh, as I talked about my background there, you noticed I never said I was Doctor Steve, pillar of the community, working at the small <laughs> animal clinic somewhere. Uh, that said, I learned all those things in school, and I. Uh, I got hooked up with a group called the Portland Animal Welfare Team, PAW Team, which is a, a group here in Portland that provides low, um, essentially no, uh, very low cost. Um, there's some charges for testing, things like that. Uh, veterinary care for the pets of people experiencing homelessness mm. or extreme poverty. Um, this is a thing I've volunteered for a handful of times, and we start seeing patients. Uh, I think we were there for about six hours today, and folks... Uh, we're lined up around the corner and uh, it was really, it, it's a different way to do veterinary medicine. I mean, people ask me with my job, like, so you're a veterinarian? I'm like, this is public health is veterinary medicine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I also do sometimes do this form that's a little more uh, recognizable. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, it's good to get to do that kind of work as well. Yeah. So is it, uh, what, what kind of uh, you know, you were there for six hours today. What kind of cases did you see? Most of them, it's it's kind of wellness checks. People getting updates on vaccinations. Uh, frankly, a lot of the uh, a lot of dogs needing some dental work, mm -hmm. um, and that's a thing that they support as well. We weren't doing dentals today, but their connections through uh, some of the the hospitals in the area, the vet hospitals that will support that. Um, a lot of allergies as well. One of the things that uh, I guess surprised me in vet school is that different animals manifest allergies in different places. Oh, interesting. So we think of you have allergies, you have trouble yeah. breathing. Right. Uh, dogs and cats, their allergic reactions tend to be in their skin. So if you see a dog that's often like licking its paws, that's it's actually allergies a lot of the time. Hmm. So there are ways that we can kind of break that cycle of inflammation. Um, so getting people in, getting them on the right kind of medication, getting the, their pets on the right kind of medication, that is, yeah. uh, is, is a, I think, a pretty effective way to do a lot of good that they wouldn't otherwise get without that, that visit. Yeah. Yeah. And we often don't realize the quantity of people experiencing homelessness or, or extreme poverty, how many have... Uh, Dogs, especially, I, I feel like mm -hmm. I see more dogs than uh, cats. Some with cats, but um, that 
pack mentality herd, you know, the, the pack, you know, the pack, pack mentality, not yeah. herd, uh, the pack mentality of, um, that camaraderie and that, um, companionship that they provide is, is, uh, huge. Yeah. Really, well, it's really part important. of, yeah. What makes you still feel human. Right. If you're in a situation like that is having an animal around yeah. oddly enough. Are there resources also to uh, referrals or low cost for um, spay and neutering? I believe there are. The Oregon Humane Society, mm-hmm. um, there's some connections there. I, they may be more informal than formal. Mm-hmm. But if you poke around on the PAW Team website, uh, I believe it's just pawteam.org, mm-hmm. uh, that can get you some information if you want to, if you're a vet tech or a veterinarian, want to volunteer, if you want to contribute. Yeah. I believe they're run primarily on donations. Um, or if you or someone you know might be in need of this kind of service, there are ways to sign up. You know, these weekend drop-in clinics are quarterly, but there are appointments uh, different times through the week. So mm-hmm. those services are available uh, for folks who, who may need them. Nice. Do uh, So the clinic, was that a normal uh, veterinarian office during the week and uh, once a quarter opens its doors for, or like how? It's, it's actually, so PAW team has a building, has a, has a building. Um, and this is where they normally see patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a little uh, busier than a, a weekday, I believe. We were putting um, uh, basically two stations in a room. So two places with a, a doctor and a technician and seeing pets kind of the whole time through. Wow. Wow. Really, really cool project. Uh and so pawteam.org is their website. If you want uh, to volunteer, get involved, or uh, donate, uh, please go to their website. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on our on our little show and, and helping us understand some of this stuff. It was amazing. I had a great time. Thanks, guys. It was fun yeah. to, to talk about this, and I'm glad to done so nice nice well uh you can hear our show on fun employment radio uh next week we will be back with a new portland at the movies where we'll be talking about brain smasher a love story starring andrew dice clay and terry hatcher um well i'm gonna take you out with this um taiwanese anti-sars anthem by shokwan shu so we will see you guys next time thank you for listening you can all enjoy the video together all right bye-bye it's like a we are the world for 这世界他看至少有点灰你微笑的脸有些疲惫 I'm so excited to hear the chorus. Here it comes.